you can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Good evening, everyone. We begin the readout tonight with a sigh of relief, followed by a right-wing meltdown. Now that President Biden has announced far-reaching new federal requirements to compel the millions of still unvaccinated Americans to just go get their shots. Well, if you're like me, chances are you and those in your circle thought, finally, we finally don't have to worry about the unvaccinated bogarting our spaces and keeping the pandemic going. But on the right, oh, the freakout is already in full effect. We told you last night about Texas Governor Greg Abbott's you have to be joking pledge to protect Texans right to choose. But really across the board, the reaction has ranged from absurd to hysterical to downright frightening. Take, for example, the two candidates in Ohio's race to the bottom Republican Senate primary. Mr. Punch the Poor's J.D. Vance told the working people of Ohio, only mass civil disobedience will save us. Yeah, OK, you're going to lead that, Mr. Investment Banker? Meanwhile, former Ohio treasurer and professional Afghan refugee hater Josh Mandel expanded on those thoughts in a creepy nighttime rant in a cornfield. Do not comply with the tyranny. And when the Gestapo show up at your front door, you know what to do. Okay, to be clear, the president is calling for a requirement that employees get tested once a week or just simply get vaccinated. But the Republicans are telling the unvaccinated to resist, which I guess means quitting your job which is kind of the opposite of the Republicans' other demand that you get a job. And this Gestapo that they claim is is coming for your freedom to catch and spread COVID, well, that Gestapo is you. You, you're the one who has to decide whether you want to do what it takes to protect yourself and the rest of us from a deadly pandemic, or whether you'd rather stay home and do your own research and probably catch COVID and wind up clogging up an ICU. Cue the fully vaccinated poop peddlers over at Fox News who dropped this wisdom after they got called out by Biden. We begin with one of the most heinous displays we've ever seen from a president. I'm talking, of course, about Joe Biden's angry anti-American vaccine mandate push earlier today. And then saying to the flight attendants, you know what, show some respect for the flight attendants. Maybe some of the flight attendants ought to show some respect to us, okay? Democrats in the media spent four years calling Donald Trump a tyrant. But what we just saw from Joe Biden is more authoritarian than anything Donald Trump ever tried. What? I guess she missed the part where he refused to accept the results of a Democratic election. Anyway, Republican governors across the board are are just apoplectic. South Carolina's Henry McMaster said he'd fight President Biden to the gates of hell over the vaccine policy. Uh, Apparently, the South will rise again for the right to die of an airborne virus and then go to hell to fight Gettysburg Part Two. Several GOP governors are even threatening to sue, including America's YOLO governor, South Dakota's Kristi Noem. This is not a power that is delegated to the federal government. This is a power for states to decide. In South Dakota, we're going to be free. My legal team is already working, and we will defend and protect our people from this unlawful mandate. Again, to be clear, these governors are essentially saying the hill they choose to die on, or more accurately, let their own base die on, is the determination to force as much COVID as possible on their own populations so they can appeal to 25% of the population? 
President Biden today made it clear what he thinks of their threats. Have at it. I am so um, disappointed that uh, particularly some of the Republican governors have been so cavalier with the health of these kids, so cavalier with the health of their communities. The vast majority of the American people know we have to do these things. They're hard but necessary. We're going to get them done. Look, he's right. Americans aren't even irritated. They're sick of it. For the angry unvaccinated, it's not about freedom. It's about a right to be dead. And it's an argument for only a quarter of Americans. The rest of us are already partially or fully vaccinated and ready to get on with our lives. And a Gallup poll this week found that among the vaccinated, three quarters support requiring vaccination to go to an office or a work site. So President Biden is governing for the majority and the numbers show it. And the majority is sick of the bull. Joining me now, Neil Katyal, former acting U.S. Solicitor General and an MSNBC legal analyst, and Fernand Amandi, Democratic pollster and MSNBC political analyst. Um, Neil, I'm going to start with you because these governors are about to waste a whole lot of time in court. Because even the Federalist, which, you know, started out as, I guess, a a conservative tone, but became like a Trump thing. Even they said this is way back in 2015 before they turned into into whatever they are now. And they wrote a piece that was called The Insane Vaccine Debate. We've had mandatory vaccine policies in the U.S. since before the Emancipation Proclamation. Why are they controversial now? Here's a quote from it. If you choose not to vaccinate, private and public institutions should be able to discriminate on that basis. Uh, Talk a little bit about the legal backing for what Joe Biden is doing. Um, And I guess it has to do with OSHA. As Matt, Rachel Maddow explained last night, explain that, please. Yeah. So, Joe, Joy, I completely think that this is a legal action by the Biden administration. And it's kind of hilarious that Republican governors have all of a sudden discovered law. I mean, Trump did all sorts of patently unconstitutional things like the Muslim ban. And they were all about deference to the president in times of emergency and stuff like that. And COVID, of course, is a true emergency, not like Muslim immigration or like the caravan or all those other cockamamie things. And there is truly a give me a break quality to what the Republicans are saying. I mean, it's supposedly they say an overreach of government power to enforce these workplace standards. But it's like totally reasonable to deploy unmarked federal agents to arrest protesters and the like. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the Bill of Rights only covers one of those acts. And it's, I'm pretty sure it's not the right to go to work unvaccinated. So you were asking about OSHA, and here's the deal. It, OSHA provide, allows the government to regulate workplace safety. And, you know, the test under the statute is the government must show, quote, that workers face a hazard in the workplace that poses a grave danger to their health or safety. Now, this obviously qualifies. I mean, I went to my first concert last night in 18 months and I realized, you know, or knew the theater had been closed for 18 months. Our workplaces have been closed. Hundreds of thousands of Americans are dying. I mean, OSHA has so many regulations that they regulate, for example, whether you can have an open water bottle at work. If they can regulate that, I kind of (laughs) think that you're allowed to regulate whether or not they can, you know, deal with COVID. Yeah, welcome to reality. Let's just say you mentioned Trump. Here's Donald Trump. This is cut five from my producers. This is him claiming total authority over states. When somebody's the president of the United States, the authority is total. And that's the way it's got to be. Your authority is total. It's total. It's total. And the governors know that. 
Yeah, okay. So, so you know, it, you know, it's different when it's Trump, right? Uh, Fernand, let's talk about real, the real world, okay? Because these Republicans are pretending like you don't have to get vaccinated for a whole bunch of stuff just to put your kids in school. You got kids. You, you know, I, I've raised kids in Florida as well. You have to get vaccinated for a whole lot of things. Let's just put them up on the screen just to go to school. Chickenpox, diphtheria, hepatitis A and B, meningitis, measles, mumps, polio, pneumonia, rot- rotavirus, rubella, tetanus, whooping cough, uh, you pretty much got to get vaxxed for a whole lot of stuff. Your thoughts uh, on how on what the politics are, in your view, as a as a, as a as, you know, as a, somebody who analyzes this stuff and analyzes polling for a living. Who's got the stronger politics here? The guy that's saying enough already or the people who are saying we got a right to die and spread COVID. Joy, the politics are rock solid for President Biden because. I think it's a mistake to try and present this as a President Biden or Biden administration mandate. This isn't coming from the president of the administration. This is coming from the American people and the American voter. I think you touched on it at the outset of the segment. 65% of voters are already fully vaccinated. 75% of voters have already gotten one shot. So we're on the way. And those numbers, by the way, are climbing still, even as we speak right now. So I think what's happening now is you're seeing President Biden do what is appropriate in a democracy. He is not allowing a tyranny of the minority to impact how the rest of us, the clear majority in this case of Americans who want to get back to normalcy, who want to get back to life, who want to get back to work and who frankly don't want to die. I mean, there is a cure out there. (laughs) If people don't want to take it, they have that right. But the fundamental fact is, yes, here in America, you have the right not to take the vaccine. You are free to do so. You are also free to leave the United States. And if you want to recolonize or repopulate a new country, call it Magistan, where the life expectancy (laughs) isn't going to be very high amongst the unvaccinated, feel free. But for the rest of us here in normal world, this was an overdue measure by the Biden administration and a welcome one. And I think you're going to see him rise in the polls in the days to come. And, and, or leave your job. Let's bring in Stephanie Rule. Uh, Stephanie Rule, host of, this, of Stephanie Rule Reports on MSNBC and NBC News, senior business correspondent. Stephanie, I saw you uh, yesterday on Nicole Wallace's show. And, you know, I, I do love to steal stuff from Nicole because I do love her show. And you said something that I thought was so smart. The, I think the assumption is because people tend to think of Republicans as the pro-business party, is that, ah, they must have the pro-business take here. Not among the business people I know, and apparently mm-hmm. not among the CEOs you talk to. Mm-hmm. Please explain. Uh, okay, first of all, I cannot believe Neil Katyal said he went to his first concert in 18 months last night, and neither of you stopped this segment and insisted on finding out what concert it was. <laughs> it's the only <laughs> thing I've thought about for the last two minutes. What Foo was it? Fighters, Tell us quickly. 930 Club. That's- was it Foo Fighters? Now I'm jealous. That's why I didn't ask. Now I, have, now I have FOMO. Okay, th- thanks for that. Go ahead, Stephanie. Okay, I that's amazing. FOMO. No. Okay, let's be clear. This move yesterday was 100% supported by, uh, thrilled by the business community. CEOs in this country want their employees back, they want their employees healthy, and they want their customers back. You are going to see, sure, maybe a little bit of a lawsuit here, a lawsuit there, but not much. This is exactly what they've wanted. And we've heard this. This is the ultimate air cover. So then they didn't need to deal with, oh, now their employees don't want it. Now they're going to quit and go work at the business down the street. Now they can say, not my rules, right? Hate the game, not the player. The government decided it. This is exactly what the business community wanted. They're thrilled about it. Yeah. Let's talk about 100%. Especially big business in the South. 
Well, the whole argument that we've been hearing from Republicans is that they want to cut off the unemployment, extended unemployment insurance, because they want people to put that check down and come back to work. A lot of the reason people are afraid to come back to work is they don't want to get COVID. They're afraid to go back into an environment where they don't know who's vaccinated and who's not unvaccinated. And they're saying to themselves, let me make the calculation. I'm going to bring COVID home to my kid that can't get vaccinated. I'm going to get sick. Maybe my grandma, my mom. And they're making a very rational calculation. If you take that off the table, guess what people are going to do? They're going to feel more comfortable going back to work and say, good, at least I know I'm safe in that space. Neil, talk a little bit about the Postal Service, because this confused us a little bit. Um, Here's what we have from uh, this is, I guess, from the administration. Okay, the OSHA is going to cover U.S. Postal Service through the emergency temporary standard, meaning that postal workers will be subject to the vaccination or testing policy announced yesterday. That's per the White House. Can you just explain that? So they are federal employees, right? But they're going to be covered, too, right? Exactly. I think the Biden proposal is to not just cover federal to cover private sector workplaces, but also federal employees and federal contractors. And there's a different suite of authorities that applies to regulation over the private sector and over the government. And so uh, President Biden is wisely invoking both lines of authority here. And, you know, it is really striking to me that Republican governors are challenging this. I mean, in one sense, I think you could call it brave because like if I had botched a pandemic response the way they did, I'd never show my face in public again, let alone <laughs> put my name on, you know, some sort of attack on a coronavirus policy. I mean, it's kind of like Paul von Hindenburg going on a national blink tour <laughs> or something like that. It is wild. You know, and Stephanie, the reason I bring up the Postal Service is because not, first of all, DeJoy needs to go, but not just because of that. The other issue here is in terms of what we have, the way we've been living. We've been getting everything delivered, a lot of us. You know, we all went into this lockdown where everything had to come to your house. Mm-hmm. That means a human has to come to your house. A person has to come to your house. If you're now talking about making it safer, Amazon's going to love that. All of these people who send stuff by delivery are going to love that. You're talking about all of the places where we're touched by other people that are outside our bubble. If we think they're safe, I'm not a business reporter. You're the expert. But ain't we going to use those businesses more? A hundred percent. Joy, I have a child under the age of 12. So even though I'm vaccinated and I think, oh, I can go everywhere, I can't. Right. I'm taking lots of personal risks, but I live with an unvaccinated person. If suddenly I can go to stores and businesses and restaurants that I know are completely safe, I'm going to do a lot more business. This is great for the economy. And please remember, CEOs out there, they want their customers back. They want their employees back. Even if they're saying, oh, we're okay with work from home. We're extending the date. Make no mistake. They want people back in the office ASAP. And the only way they're going to get them back is if we're vaccinated and healthy. They want this. We are out of time. But very quickly, Fernand, isn't COVID still Biden's best issue? Not only is it his best issue, it is the defining issue. I mean, as much as the Republicans wanted to try and anchor him down with Afghanistan, that's not the issue here. This administration in this first term lives and dies on two things, saving us from COVID and saving U.S. democracy. And I think on the first issue, Biden's made some great progress this week. All I need him to do is say, don't make me pull this car over on 
voting rights, too. And then he's going to have hit the trifecta. Neil Katyal, Stephanie Rule, Fernand Amandi, you guys are great. Have a great weekend. Up next on The Readout, a doctor on the front lines fighting to keep abortion safe and legal in Texas joins me as state officials offer up a pathetic, pathetic defense for their unconstitutional new law. Also, the devastating effects that a Gavin Newsom loss would have on California. Former Governor Jerry Brown joins me. And we have more special guests tonight. Morgan Freeman. Morgan Freeman and Frankie Faison are here on their very important new movie, The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain, based on the true story of a black Marine veteran shot and killed by police. Plus, my thoughts on the painful memories of 9-11, which never, ever go away. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Now that the Justice Department has joined the fight against Texas and its nearly complete abortion ban, it's up to the courts to decide whether or not to put a stop to what amounts to an unconstitutional bounty hunter program against vulnerable women. But at this point, the law remains in effect preventing health care providers from providing care to their fellow Texans. Republicans in the Lone Star State continue to show their utter ignorance and disregard for women's constitutional rights. The state party responded to the Justice Department, taunting them to come and get it or come and take it with what appears to be an image of a fetal heartbeat. And then there's uh, Attorney General Ken Paxton, who's claiming that the founding fathers actually intended for Texas to have the ability to pass an anti-abortion law that places bounties on women. They clearly didn't understand what the founders intended, which was they wanted states to be the experiments for democracy so that they could try things different ways. Every time we make a move, whether it's on elections or abortion or anything that's good for our people, they come in, the federal government comes in, Biden comes in and tries to stop us from taking care of our people. Joining me now is Dr. Bhavik Kumar, an abortion care provider with the Planned Parenthood Center for Choice in Houston, Texas. And uh, Dr. Kumar, I I really kind of think he was referring to the Fugitive Slave Act, uh, but that was in 1850, not with the founders. And it's probably not a really good PR move to sort of casually and tacitly refer to that. But I won't uh, make you analyze that. Let's talk about what can be done. Um, You were part of a roundtable that Vice President Kamala Harris held um, with reproductive health advocates yesterday. You were there. What did you take away from it? Yeah, we were very happy that the uh, Biden-Harris administration held a meeting with folks like me, an abortion provider in Texas. Um, What we heard from the administration is that they are with us that they are supportive of abortion providers and folks who need access to abortion in Texas, and that they have our backs. I heard that message loud and clear from the administration. 
Let me let you listen to uh, Governor Greg Abbott, uh, and I apologize for forcing you to listen to him, but he, here's what he said, <laughs> particularly about the rape or incest, uh, the, the lack of any sort of exception for that, which has become a real issue and caused real outrage. Here's what he said about it. Why force a rape or incest victim to carry a pregnancy to term? Uh, it doesn't require that at all, because uh, obviously uh, it provides uh, at least six weeks uh, for a person uh, to be able to uh, get an abortion. Is that true? That is absolutely false. I think that comment shows the not just the uh, ignorance because he's choosing not to understand any medical facts. He's not a physician, um, has no background in medicine, and it is completely false. And it is also really offensive to the people who are survivors of rape and incest and need to access abortion. And so it's a great example, unfortunately, of just the lack of politicians having any medical background or information on how to make these laws, yeah. let alone how to talk about the people that need access. Yeah. And I wonder if you could just give us the pragmatics, because, look, it's not just people who are victims of rape and incest, as horrifying as that is, who need to use the services um, that you provide and who have a right to under under the Constitution and under the law. There, there are reports of people traveling as, you know, all outside of, of, of Texas, reports in Kansas, Colorado, New Mexico, Oklahoma of women, you know, desperately leaving the state trying to get health care. Um, what has been the pragmatic impact for you, for you, for your clinic? What have you seen? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as you mentioned, Senate Bill 8, even though it's a ban on abortion when cardiac motion is detected, it's really essentially a complete ban on abortion. And when you ban abortion, it doesn't change the need for it. So folks, instead of getting the care that they need within the state, closer to where they live, they're being forced to go out of state. So now Texas folks are now becoming an issue for other states. They're going as far as Kansas, New York, Chicago, wherever they can get care, they're going out of state. And it's really unfortunate. We're seeing patients come back uh, for their follow-up care, we're having to help them navigate how to figure out the travel, child care for the children that they already have at home, the cost of traveling out of state. And let's not forget that we're still in a pandemic. So the risk of COVID-19 is still there. It is really, really unfortunate. And I think for me as a physician, it's so frustrating and it really feels unethical to say, I have the skills and the training to help you, but the governor and the government here is forcing me to tell you, you have to go out of the state. Yeah. And they're quite proud uh, of this law because they believe that now private citizens will sue someone like you. Are you worried about that? And are, are, is there a plan in place for what happens through your organization if somebody does decide to put a bounty on a woman and names you as a defendant? Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the uh, most concerning parts about this law is this sort of vigilante concept where anybody can sue somebody who aids or abets somebody getting an abortion in Texas. Um, and it is uh, scary. It's the first of its kind. It's unprecedented. It's the most extreme that I've seen or anybody has seen when it comes to abortion restrictions in Texas. Um, and we are navigating that. We are not clear if this is going to be a couple of lawsuits or if it will be several hundred. It is unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But what I'm doing as a physician is centering the people that need access to care and making yeah. sure we take their concerns and their priorities and their care uh, at the center of what we're doing. So we're concerned, but we're moving forward and taking care of people because, like I said, banning abortion doesn't stop the need for abortion. It, uh, indeed. I wish we could sue politicians who pretend to be doctors when they when they ain't. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Babi yeah. Kumar. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks for all you do. Cheers. Uh, coming up next, former California Governor Jerry Brown joins me to talk about the crucial recall election in his state on Tuesday. Will California go the way of Texas and Florida? That's a terrifying thought. We'll be right back.
you can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. There's a saying that there are moments in a nation's life when each generation loses its innocence. For my parents' generation, it was Vietnam and Watergate. For mine, it was the Rodney King beating, the police acquittals, and the L.A. uprising that followed, and 9-11. In both instances, the loss of innocence comes down to no longer feeling safe in your own country. The September 11 terror attacks in 2001 were a visual, visceral, terrifying reminder of the fact that death can be visited upon us anywhere, on a plane, at work, in an iconic building that felt permanent, and yet it fell. Nearly 3,000 lives were lost that day. I think everyone who was old enough to experience it live on television remembers exactly where they were. I was in Florida, where we had moved four years earlier from New York, but I was still a New Yorker. That still felt like home. I had a day off from the NBC affiliate where I worked as a digital producer and woke up to hear my brother, who was visiting from Denver, and my husband yelling, oh, shh, a plane just crashed into the World Trade Center. I ran downstairs just as the second plane hurtled into the South Tower. We all understood. This was no wrong way small plane pilot, no accident. And as the morning unfolded and I got called into work, it became real clear, real fast, that we, the big we, were under attack. More hijacked airplanes targeted the Pentagon and seemed to aim at the White House or the Capitol. My kids were five, three, and one in 2001. Their whole lives have been lived in the wake of 9-11. My daughter has had to surrender her Barbie backpack to be searched at the airport. I was of the unpopular opinion, along with the very lonely voice of Congresswoman Barbara Lee, opposing going to war in Afghanistan and even more so Iraq. I actually quit the news business for a time over my anti-war stance. And I still wonder what might have happened had we not had a president surrounded by men who had been spoiling for an Iraq invasion for years with one eye on imperial hegemony and another on Iraq's oil. Had we not had an administration willing to lie to us to get their forever wars. Had we focused on just getting bin Laden and not spent a generation occupying the country known as the graveyard of empires. Had we not continued to cozy up to the Saudis despite their, their nationals being 15 of the 19 hijackers. Had we not had a national lust for oil and instead turned away from it toward energy resources that could have actually saved the planet. Had we used that rare moment of national unity for something else. But honestly, mostly I just think a lot, especially this week, about those people on the planes and in those buildings, how scared they must have been. It haunts me, man. The inhumanity of what they had to go through, those, those last phone calls to say goodbye, how they tried to fight back, how brave those first responders were who ran up all those stairs while so many ran down, how some chose the air over the flames. Even 20 years later, it hurts. And so this weekend, we'll remember and we'll hurt and we'll try to heal again.
California recall vote just days away, there are some encouraging signs for Governor Gavin Newsom. A new poll from UC Berkeley shows a whopping 60 percent of registered voters say they oppose recalling Newsom. That number was hovering at 50 percent just six weeks ago. The Los Angeles Times reports that the turnaround is thanks in part to Newsom's effort to redefine the recall campaign as a referendum on Trumpism. I guess it helps that Newsom's leading opponent is Larry Elder, the conservative talk radio host and Trump fan who has made it clear he would turn the great state of California into another Texas or Florida. Elder opposes vaccine and mask requirements. He thinks the minimum wage should be zero. He said it's smart for women to tolerate crude behavior in the workplace. And he's argued that the descendants of slaveholders, well, they're the ones who deserve reparations. No joke. Those are the stakes on Tuesday. Now, that's not to mention that Elder has also embraced the big lie and is already questioning the legitimacy of the vote next Tuesday, claiming it's all rigged. And he's actually said that Stephen Miller, the anti-immigrant former Trump advisor, should be president of the United States. That means that if anything should happen to Dianne Feinstein, let's say that she retired, a Governor Elder could appoint Miller to the United States Senate. Of course, the recall itself is nothing more than a Republican power grab organized by right-wing activists and financed by wealthy conservative donors. Among those who funded the recall, there's Jeffrey Palmer, a luxury condo developer who opposes affordable housing. John Kruger, an opponent of COVID restrictions in churches who used a shell company to hide his identity. And Mike Huckabee even chipped in almost a quarter of a million bucks through his pack. Then you've got some venture capitalists and oil and gas companies, some private equity investors, and you get the idea. Joining me now on the phone is Jerry Brown, who served 16 years as governor of California. And governor Brown, I have to say, California is, is such a progressive state in some ways, but in some ways it is a very scary state. These recalls, 538 wrote today, the California's recall process is one of the most lenient in the country of the 29 recall elections for state legislators that have had that have taken place in the United States. Nine have been in California. And after Tuesday, two of the nation's four gubernatorial recall elections will have taken place in that state. When you look at the people who are funding this recall, very wealthy right wing interests, does it worry you that it's been so easy for them to jeopardize the state with this recall? Yeah, it is. It is worrisome. And I think we're seeing more recalls because we're seeing more money. And over the last few decades, and increasingly uh, over time, more and more money is available, particularly on the right. It's available from many quarters. So uh, it, it would be inconceivable 30 or 40 years ago to think of a successful recall. So it's all about money. And maybe there's some way uh, that the requirements can be increased so we don't have to go through uh, this nonsense because there's an election in another year where all these same issues will be uh, relitigated. So uh, it's just there's a lot of discontent in politics, very big polarization. So it isn't too hard to get 12 percent of the people uh, to sign a recall for almost anything. And, and that's really uh, uh, the dilemma here, that, that the polarization, the antipathy uh, toward anything uh, on the part of somebody can translate into this crazy recall. But I think as more information came out, it's very obvious the recall is going down. People don't want uh, what the recall backers want, and they don't want what these leading recall candidates are offering. It's kind of going back, you know, I don't know, the 1920s. Very crazy. Yeah. And it only worked because nobody knew what the stakes were or who were these the characters who want to uh, be governor of the recall 
could ever go through. Right. I mean, it, it is the ultimate in sort of in minority rule, right? I doubt that very many Californians want to be Texas or Florida and have their numbers. We, we pulled a wonderful producer here, pulled the numbers here. The national average for COVID deaths per 100,000 people is 202. California is below that average because of, you know, smart policies to try to stop COVID. Texas and Florida are both well over the average. Look at Florida peaking out there at 225 per 100,000. I mean, the idea that somebody like Larry Elder could come in and basically force California to get more COVID and more COVID deaths. Um, what do you do? You think that that message has gotten through? Well, the message is getting through. Uh, who Elder is? What the recall is all about? Look. The way it is today, there's a lot of discontent. Discontent about the vaccine, discontent for the the loss of jobs, probably discontent over Afghanistan, all sorts of things, both local, state, and federal. Therefore, if you just start kind of in a vacuum and say, are you happy? Well, people say, no, I'm not happy, darn it. Let's change. So that was the basis of the recall getting some steam. But once they understand that change is much worse and, and not what people want, then they say no. And that's what's going to happen. It's no. Newsom will be resoundedly uh, retained, and I think California will go on its way uh, uninfluenced by the characters who are getting their moment of glory <laughs> in this recall. Crazy. Yeah, let me, let me this is, I don't even know if I have a question for it, but here's, the, here's an ad. This is one of the Larry Elder ads. It's real weird. You remind me of the guy in high school who took my girlfriend, then went on to the next girl. You still think you're better than everyone else. I mean, I, I don't even know if I have a question for, uh, for it, but what do you make of that tactic? I mean, going after him because I guess he's handsome. I mean, you listen, you, you, you've dated a famous person. You dated uh, the beautiful Linda Ronstadt back in the days. So I hope you don't mind me asking what you think of that tactic. Well, it, it's characteristic. This guy, Elder, I was on his talk show 10 years ago, and we were talking about the high-speed rail, and I said something, well, you don't even believe in public infrastructure. He said, you want to kiss my behind? He used another word, by the way. I, no, I didn't. I didn't say that. He likes to use provocative language because he is a provocateur. That's why he's good at talk radio. But he's certainly not good at government, and the people have figured that out by now. There are a few roadblocks that are potentially there um, for the governor, as you said, people's just sort of general maybe unhappiness, maybe low turnout. One of the kind of issues that's popped up that is I don't know what you make of whether it is a threat to the way that this might turn out. Sirhan Sirhan, the man who uh, assassinated Robert F. Kennedy, is up for uh, parole. Um, governor Newsom hasn't said whether or not that he would accept that uh, parole what would you advise him to do? Because it, it seems like this is sort of a no-win call for him. Well, uh, first of all, I, I know the timing. It isn't even close. It takes 90 days before the governor has to rule, and the governor is getting 20, 25 of these every week. And it wouldn't be appropriate for me to tell him what to do or for him to say without really giving it to judicial review. Uh, yeah. So I, don't, I think it's a non-issue right now. Uh, governor Newsom has rejected paroles when he thought that uh, – that was the appropriate thing, or there was some outrageous mm-hmm. case that he felt the people uh, didn't believe in and the law uh, didn't uh, contemplate any kind of parole. So I wouldn't worry about this decision. Uh, uh, Gavin Newsom cares about uh, the safety and, uh, of the people of California and very much about the law of California. Former Governor Jerry Brown, former California Governor Jerry Brown, thank you so much. I really appreciate you being here tonight. Thank you so much. 
All right. Well, coming up next, executive producer Morgan Freeman joins me next to talk about his new movie based on the events surrounding the killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. There he is. We'll be right back. Ten years ago in White Plains, New York, Kenneth Chamberlain, a 68-year-old black veteran with a history of mental illness, accidentally set off his medical alert device. As the New York Times reports, police were dispatched to his home for a welfare check. And 90 minutes later, after he had been taunted with racial slurs and subdued by both a taser weapon and beanbag rounds, Chamberlain was shot and killed. No officers were charged with a grand jury declining to indict in 2012 and jurors rejecting the family's wrongful death suit in 2016. But last year, a judge gave his family renewed hope, rejecting a previous ruling that the officers were protected by qualified immunity. This harrowing instance of police brutality is portrayed in the new movie, The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. Mr. Chamberlain, this is Candace Wade, Lifeguard Medical Alerts. This line is being recorded. You just received an activation from your pendant. Do you have an emergency? I'm not getting a response from you. I'm going to dispatch emergency services now. White Plains Police! We're here for a welfare check. Open this door! You're not coming into my home! Help me! Help me! I need help! I'm joined now by Morgan Freeman, Academy Award winning actor and the executive producer of The Killing of Kenneth Chamberlain. He's also the president and co-founder of Revelations Entertainment. I'm also joined on the phone by Frankie Faison, the actor portraying Kenneth Chamberlain, as well as Mr. Chamberlain's son, Kenneth Chamberlain Jr. Thank you all for being here. Uh, I'm going to go to you first, Mr. Freeman, uh, and and I'm trying to be calm because I am a a huge fan of yours, but I'm going to conduct this interview with all the dignity I can muster. Um, How did you come to this project? Um, my partner and I, um, Laura McCreary, she's co-founder of Revelations. We saw the movie, uh, I don't know, sometime back during the pandemic in, in 2020, I think. Uh, yeah, this is 21, isn't it? it is. And uh, it was just so profound uh, and such a, a tour de force for a Frankie. Uh, and the story is so immediate. It's a true story of this man that the movie is based just on that truth. And it's just, I don't know, it brings out again such an unnecessary situation when we involve police in a situation that does not call for any police. Uh, Kenneth's uh, inadvertent triggering of his nine one one health uh life alert thing should not have triggered anything that would lead to his death unless he was in some sort of health problem and he wasn't. This is just why we shouldn't send the police to do a job they're not trained to do. Yeah, indeed. And and Mr. Chamberlain Jr., I mean, uh, you know, our condolences, of course, for your loss. Uh, my heart rate went up just watching that little bit of the film. It was a brilliant film, but it was so tragic and heartbreaking. Uh, I went into a deep, deep dive on the story reading it. You, you know how it's going to come out, but it's still so painful to watch. He calls his children at one point in the film. You are his son. Um, what do you want people to understand about your dad? 
Well, I guess one of the first things that people have to understand is that what happened shouldn't have taken place. That a police officer's job is to defuse a situation, not create one. And on November 19, 2011, they did just that. They created it. Um, we, we've often said to the press and many other people, it wasn't a crime until they made it one. He inadvertently triggered his life a pending. That's all he did and wanted to be left alone. Yeah. Uh, Frankie Faison, uh, thank you for joining us. And we're having a little technical gremlins, but you join, you're joining us on the phone. I have to say your performance was absolute genius. It was so raw. It was so visceral. It, it, it was it was heartbreaking. Um, talk about how you approached, you know, playing a real a real man uh, with with a story that we can all read. Talk about your approach in playing um, this man. Well, first of all, thank you for having me on the show, and hello to everyone. First of all, I would just like to say it's the writing of the uh, writer, David Mardell. You know, when I got this script, I knew nothing about Kenneth Chamberlain, nothing about the incident, and I live in New Jersey, which shows that it didn't really have very far-reaching uh, publicity. It was not publicized. It was kept kind of quiet. I read the script, and I was immediately drawn to the character. I mean, I just... Uh, that something is in this piece that just really connects to me, and I really want to tell that story, and having no idea about the impact of of of, of this story and this film because it's based on a true true incident that occurred. So my yeah. basic approach was the same approach that I use whenever I'm acting in anything. I look to see what's in the script, what the writer has given me, and then I just take it off of the other actors and and what's in my heart, I follow through with that. But this this touched me in such a way that uh, it's a universal story. You know, it just... Uh, He's a black man, but I mean, this kind of situation could have happened to anyone. And with so many yeah. incidents of things happening to blacks uh, by law enforcement officers, I felt even it was even more compelling to get this out in an open and a very honest way. So simplicity yeah. is the name of the game as far as I'm concerned with this. I just tried to tell the stories honestly and frankly as I could. And it was really tough to go to those places over the short of period of time that I had to go through them. But yeah, I but you, um, you did a fantastic just, job. It, it, it's so good. You did. You're, you're brilliant. Uh, and, you know, I, I have to ask you, Mr. Chamberlain, you said in 2020, you said the judge's reliance on qualified immunity cut the heart out of our case. It meant that evidence showing the police unlawfully entered my father's apartment and used excessive force against him could not be heard at trial. We look forward to another day in court. So in 2020, an appellate court did say um, the federal judge erred when he said that White Plains police were entitled to qualified immunity. Are you hopeful that there'll be justice for your dad? Oh, to be perfectly honest, I, I, I've used that hashtag justice for Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. But at this juncture, almost a decade later, justice will never see justice for Kenneth Chamberlain Sr. Yeah. He hoped for some type of accountability now. And that is what my family and I want to see happen. And I think that one of the more powerful statements in that uh, decision from the Second Circuit is when they said, Instead of treating Mr. Chamberlain like a critically ill patient, you treated him like a criminal suspect. So with this film yeah. and the fact that it's coming out now, I often tell people one thing that I want this film to do with nothing else is let it be a teaching tool of what not to do. Yeah. 
Amen. Uh, Morgan Freeman, do you, I hadn't heard of this either. I don't know if you were familiar with the story before. I, you know, I, I'm from New York as well. And it does feel like there are just too many stories to tell. You know, what do you hope comes out of this story? Well, <laughs> we, we're going to have to readdress the whole idea of uh, law enforcement, of police work. Uh, that legend on the car that says protect and serve is just there. It doesn't mean anything to the people riding those cars, I don't think. We have to get uh, fully behind the idea of retraining, of a police being um, this whole thing being rethought. Uh, sending police to uh, a situation as it happened with Kenneth Chamberlain, it was just ridiculous. It's just stupid. And then when the police got there, they were even stupider. Uh, it's so unnecessary. We could s certainly do something about it. And the best way to do anything about it, however, is to put people in office who are willing to do something about it. Yeah. Uh, and indeed, Mr. Faison, um what was it like? I guess my last question, what was it like when you finally met the family? We're, we with a little bit of time left. Uh, when I finally met the family, it was so amazing for me because they really embraced my performance and they really thanked me for honoring their their relative in, in such a way. So I felt very satisfied, like I did a credible yeah. job of, of, of portraying him in that film. They were very you certainly, you yeah. certainly did. Uh, Morgan Freeman, um, thank you so much. Uh, Frankie Faison, brilliant. Uh, Kenneth Chamberlain Jr., I hope you get justice. That's tonight's readout. The Angie's List You Know and Trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.